Mark's Madness. Welcome back. We're doing it again. We're doing it again. And that thing we're doing once again is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And as we normally, for those of you who are just tuning in for neocolonialism, usually in our episodes at the beginning, we will uh, do a quick touch on, sometimes not so quick, but a touch on current events. And by we, I do, of course, mean David, because Nathan's <laughs> a dum-dum. Yes. And, and the one thing we ever do before that, something we're always happy to do, and, and we're always happy for our listeners to reach out to us to do, is corrections, because... We unlike what Nathan's saying here of David Smart and Nathan Dum Dum. We're both kind of dum dums, and and we're just trying our best. Um, so my dum dum mixed up brain that is basically like assume that facts exist, and then like they're popcorn, and you put them in a popcorn maker, and they just bounce everywhere. And I try to grab as many as possible and not get them mixed up, and that's how my brain works. It's not good. Um, and so I was talking about the Socialist Workers' Party and the split of the Workers' Party in the intro about Kwame Nkrumah, uh, because that's important, because uh, Freddie Frost and C.L.R. James um, founding the Workers' Party were a big influence on Nkrumah uh, before Nkrumah went over to England, right, to actually meet uh, Du Bois and, and, and things like that on, on the path to forming Ghana. Um, well... I said, and I got it mixed up, I said that the Socialist Workers' Party and the Workers' Party broke away because of the approach. The Workers' Party saying, no, we shouldn't not support the Soviet Union and call it a degenerated worker state. That part was correct. And then I said the Socialist Workers' Party, in fact, uh, were the ones that started that state capitalism thing. That part I got wrong. It's the other side. So the Workers' Party said, no, Soviet Union is not a degenerated worker state. It is It is a worker state. And, and so internationally, we do need to support it. But also we should thumb at the capitalism it's quote-unquote turned into. It is quote-unquote state capitalism. And so it was actually the Workers' Party that came up with that state capitalism line, and I sent that to the Socialist Workers' Party. I, you know, I was just kind of in my brain. It was like, everything dumb and bad is the Socialist Workers' Party. But uh, it, that's a bad stance that still annoys us today. That's actually the Workers' Party's fault, even if I think the Workers' Party was on the correct side of that split. Uh, and even if the people in the Workers' Party uh, formation on the correct side of that split were the ones we were concerned with uh, in the introduction with Kwame Nkrumah. So I apologize for that mix-up. My bad. I, sources were, were going in my head so much that a very important fact of what I said, kind of in a, a backhanded riff, I put on the exact opposite side of a major, major Socialist Party split. And that that is incorrect. Um, my bad. In fact... <laughs> In fact, uh, Trotsky specifically in uh, Revolution Betrayed is his famous, like, you know, anti-Stalinist, quote-unquote, um, book, specifically ripped on the state capitalist lines because of the Socialist Workers' Party and Workers' Party split and Dum Dum David, Dum Dum it. Um <laughs> Not David. David gives himself too too hard a time. There's a lot of facts out there, and one of the fun things about being a communist on in, in 2021 is you have to know every event that happened in world history ever, or you're bad at this. Um, yes, exactly. And, and that's exactly. a very high, very high bar to meet. We don't meet it all the time for sure. So again, thank you for reaching out uh, with that correction, and thank you to anyone that wants to reach out with corrections. We are more than happy to correct ourselves any and always. Yes. Um, and so with that, let's move on, I guess, back to the current events we were talking current about. Events! Current events! Because it's been a little bit since we touched on current events. We were between books. We don't want to show current events, even though there are relevant current events in Africa. 
<laughs> um, we didn't want to shove current events into an intro episode because those are those are unique. We, we usually try to do those while we're reading. And now we're back to the first episode where we started reading the book in a few weeks. And lots and lots of things happened. Uh, the most important, I would probably... Well, shoot, ranking importance is pretty tough. Uh, the easiest one to start with. Um, is that in South Korea, and obviously, you know, that's a very Americanized South Korea, North Korea. It's a Democratic People's Republic of Korea versus the Republic of Korea, but I I don't defend calling it the ROK as much as I defend calling the other one the, the, the DPRK. That's not from animosity. That's the, you know, the people should call the country whatever they, they want to call it. Um, it's, it's because that is very explicitly a uh, U.S. colony <laughs> to the point where the military still will, like, report to the U.S. military for approval before doing anything. So what's really like a few, like tens of thousands, I say a few, like 30 or 40,000 U.S. troops, but still like 30, 40,000 U.S. troops is almost three quarters of a million troops because over half a million Korean troops are, are basically subservient to the U.S. It is very explicitly a colony, not as explicitly as from 1945 to 1948 when it was called the United States Military Colony of Korea, but... Since it's been the Republic of Korea in 1948 and, and onward um, for the split, a very important part of history and understanding the propaganda against Korea and the horrible things the U.S. has done to Korea, um, things like that. And why, in spite of uh, Korean pop industries being very, very capitalist and abusive and very really beloved in America, the artists that, that seem to be buried in that uh, whenever they are outspoken, including like the movies, uh, the plots of the movies – about it to, you know, like the outgoing politics spoken by Psy, the, the, the guy who made the Gangnam Style, Gangnam Style um, song, tends to be very, very anti-American and anti-capitalist uh, in this capitalist industry. There's there's a reason for all of those things. Um, so, you know, respectfully, I should probably call it Republic of Korea more. I just, I don't have the same oomph when I know Democratic People's Republic of Korea is what the Korean people called the North. Uh, yeah. That all of that said, <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the long roundabout, long roundabout in the Republic of Korea, um, there is the KCTU, which is is the big conglomerate of the trade unions, the the Korean um, uh, Korean collective of trade unions. I think it's called. But the KCTU is it, this is the big political driving force in Korea it has been for decades. Those the fact that it went from an explicit U.S. imposed fascist dictatorship in the 80s to still a terrifyingly U.S. controlled and right wing, but at least bourgeoisie democratic Korea because of many, many reforms in the late 80s and early 90s was all something won by the workers spearheaded by the KCTU. Anytime there's a civil rights or a people's rights gain in in the Republic of Korea, it's basically led by the KCTU, which is as far left as you can get with, you know, this quote-unquote security law that was around bef- while it was still called the United States Military Colony of Korea and has stuck with the entire existence of it being the Republic of Korea. Um, that security law, the very, very anti-communist security law that was used to genocide um, villagers that, that's been used to you know get the stories made up on money, incentive, and letting people actually out of arrest when they uh, immigrate out of the DPRK. That security law also means that you can't really publicly make art and go declaring how great you know, the DPRK and communism is. So as far left as you can get is the KCTU. Um, and the KCTU has still been an absolute vanguard of the people. Um, 
And the KCTU organized a one-day general strike on October 20th. It was very effective, and it's part of action that is leading up to a national um, all-workers action coming in January. Um, So, obviously, currently, we need to uh, throw our support behind the KCTU and the Korean people um, in this, you know, push for workers' power against the gig economy and the destruction of what's very similar to our part-time, but a little bit different um, to our part-time work, but basically, you know, work with fewer hours that strips you of all the workers' rights uh, in a much more extreme way. Um, And so in support of them against that and what they're striking against, we need to fully support the KCTU and the workers' organization there. Um, That's that's kind of the, the, the first thing I wanted to bring up um, so people know what to support. Uh, obviously, something else we've alluded to. Um, certainly, we're talking about Africa. We're talking about Kwame Nkrumah and Pan-Africanism. And there's been a lot of activity in the Horn of Africa. Um, since our last current events, there has been a military coup in Sudan. Um, people that remember, not only is South Sudan even split off in the first place from the disarray caused by the United States in the 90s. Basically, the second the Soviet Union collapsed, the United States had its own, like, like we talked about, you know, the, the what is it, the sprint for Africa, um, the rush to, to colonize Africa that, that led to World War One, right? Um, there's like four names for it, and I can't seem to think of any of them right now. Uh, but basically, the U.S. had its own just personal, independent uh, version of that second the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, so, like, you know, you see a lot in the early 90s, especially from 91 to 95, of wars in Africa and of coups and of collapses of governments and things, anything remotely left-wing in Africa. It's kind of amazing that that South Africa even went the other direction during this time. Um, And a big major area that played out beyond, of course, you know, the Congo and Rwanda and stuff like that was the Horn of Africa. Um, That's how Sudan got split to South Sudan. Well, Sudan was then ruled for a long time um, by a group that was... Not really what the people wanted, um, but not some horrible human rights destroying, you know, blah, 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 government. And there was, of course, in 2019, some big protests seemed very color revolutionary. Some other um, actors have taken over and they really haven't changed much, which hasn't satisfied the people a whole lot. But there's still a process of, quote unquote, bringing democracy um in this, right, and there was no chance for this group to prove that they're any better yet. This was only happening in 2019, and all of a sudden there was a, a coup in Sudan where you can actually see U.S. military personnel riding with the people who did the coup, and you know people such as the the you know Communist Party uh, of Sudan are like, we we don't want this. We we want to finish the the process from 2019. We're not saying that's the greatest thing or everything we want, but we we certainly don't want this coup. So that's not good. And almost in a flash after that. Uh, this this TPLF agitation that the United States has been doing in Ethiopia, um, and for those people who don't aren't familiar with it, there's actually been some really really good coverage by Eugene per year um, over the last year on it. I would check out you know any resources he he talks through. The one uh, I've been looking at the most myself was was Breakthrough News, but he's done it in a, a, a few different outlets. Um, but basically, the TPLF is who ruled you know Ethiopia from this 90s collapse until like 2018 okay um the the tigrayan people's liberation front supposedly an ethnic liberation group 
uh, supporting Tigrayan people who usually, you know, live closer to the north, uh, didn't seem to be very left-wing, as they claimed, or very, um, you know, Tigrayan <laughs> uh, supportive <laughs> when they, they ruled. They just kind of basically seized power and committed a bunch of human rights abuses to, to stay in power, and, and that was about it. Well, they kind of fell out of power in 2018, and that's where... You know, uh, Abiy Ahmed um, became prime minister, and Abiy Ahmed is not some you know incredibly left wing person. In fact, it was the TPLF that kind of so, because they had all the power, kind of selected him to rule because people kept rising up, kept rising up, and so they thought, okay, this is someone we can you know put into power, and he will be seen as more secular, more multinational, multi you know kinder to these ethnicities. I, I don't know, I said secular, it's different religion, but you get what I'm saying, like like kind. More, more pluralistic yeah. to sectarian, these different ethnicities. Non-sectarian. Non-sectarian, thank you. Um, more non-sectarian to these groups, right? But he's still going to serve our power and be our little puppet. And then when he showed up to kind of not be that little puppet and be everything he promised about bringing people together, you know, still really, really wanted to suck up to the U.S. and, and, and was happy to be the U.S. puppet, but also wanted to work with China, you know. Uh, Eritrea, which kind of, again, in this 90s collapse with the TPLF, uh, takeover, you know, broke back away from from the uh, Ethiopian uh, People's Republic uh, because you know it was no longer representative of of them, and they've been the one country in the Horn of Africa that's really resisted Africom, which does not make the U.S. very happy. <laughs> um, no, you know, Abiy Ahmed also has been you know working with. It, Eritrea, which is great. That's that's a great. That's an immense step for peace. An immense step just for world peace in general. The United States does not like world peace. The United States fucking hates world peace. And with you know Abiy Ahmed, in addition to wanting to totally be subservient to the U.S. like any other leader and, and just be you know a, a liberal ruler, um, wanting to be you know um, uh, more open, you know, give give all the groups representation and, and things like that, and also wanting to work with Eritrea and work with China, that's a big no-no. And so the U.S. seemed to think, okay, that's enough. We're going to back the TPLF. And I don't know if it's because there's enough Ethiopian people that were, like, smelling the bullshit in the United States, and and it was election day. Uh, there was kind of this random feigned, like, like the TPLF is, is descending. It, it might... Um, might get down to uh, Abis Ada, which is the the capital of of Ethiopia, the, where we talked about before in the intro, where where they had the the first meeting to declare what is now the African Union. Um, that was the OAU at the time. Um, but anyway, um, they're descending on there. It's it's not going well, and throughout this time, there's been. A little bit of a humanitarian crisis uh, caused by the war because wars will do that and people will commit war crimes. And it's been characterized as like not only on a scale that doesn't make any sense, but entirely done by the Ethiopian government. There's been this idea of like aid doesn't get it. And it's been very propagandistic, much like when you saw, you know, the road between Colombia and Venezuela that was never even opened. And it's, oh, my God, Venezuela closed this road and won't let aid in. Very much like that, like the U.N. sent in, you know, hundreds of trucks and like a hundred trucks didn't come back and the UN always sends plenty of fuel with it and they did an investigation. They're like, yeah, our trucks disappeared and there was no blocked aid by the Ethiopian government. The TPLF was like, oh yeah, you know, the trucks disappeared, but they, they don't have any fuel and, and you guys, the Ethiopian government totally blocking aid and the US is just running with that shit. Like there's been a huge propaganda campaign for this and, and where genocide, of course, as always, is just getting thrown around um, throughout this process. 
um, now all of a sudden, like Blinken put out a statement like condemning the, the the TPLF, even though the U.S. has very clearly materially been on their side the entire time. And so I don't know if that was a last second like election thing, or if that's kind of like where the U.S. quote unquote battles ISIS, even though ISIS basically only has any power because of the U.S. meddling in, in West Asia and the U.S. kind of fought with Qasem Soleimani a little bit to actually put them down when they were getting a little too big in Syria. And then the U.S. turned around and drone strike Qasem Soleimani for daring defeat ISIS. I, I mean, I don't know what, what the hell this, this sudden like condemning of the TPLF is, but it's definitely a group that the U.S. is backed and has been a long-time buddy and friend of the United States and a country that wasn't even that anti-U.S., that wasn't even like heavily nationalizing natural resources that usually is the thing that pisses off the West, was just also working with people that piss off the West, um, now is under attack. And so that's terrifying. And, of course, it is very, very quick. It looked like the TPLF was, was about to just lose this war and the war was about to end. It looked like things were winding down. And all of a sudden... Almost immediately after this coup in Sudan, which is, you know, <laughs> right there, yeah. um, all of a sudden the TPLF is making huge advances. So, yeah, the U.S. and AFRICOM is fucking around in the Horn of Africa, and the people in the Horn of Africa uh, need our support. And what that means is supporting, you know, the people that that are chosen by the people to lead against the U.S. puppets, not by choosing these U.S. puppets and denouncing the governments in the name of the people or whatever the U.S. propaganda wants you to say. Um, meantime, through all of this, speaking of elections, the Democrats trying to win their little elections uh, with their vote blue no matter who are, of course, coincidentally, just enough Democrats short with their majority to be knocking down this quote-unquote build back better bill uh to the point that it's stripped out basically everything and it's just this quote-unquote infrastructure bill so they got their asses handed to them in some elections (laughs) um which was pretty funny to see but of course you know i don't think a quote-unquote progressive or left-wing american that that slightly opens a welfare state up but does the same imperialism is all that much better for the world or worth throwing your weight behind or anything like that. But as a political action, for as much as it is way overemphasized in the U.S., voting, when you can make it, when you're not blocked out by voter suppression and long lines and stuff like that, can be a very easy comparatively political act that can have some impact. And the quote-unquote progressives in the Democrats – Um, are going to get blamed for what the supposedly centrist, again, you know, the very right wing of this right wing United States Party has done being the the Republicans with the D next to their name. Um, (laughs) So, like I said, it's been a very, very eventful time since we've had a current events. A lot of big things going on. Um, You know, elections, absolutely stripped down bills that were supposed to be the biggest bill in the last couple decades and finally give in to these demands of of free school lunches and, and, you know, things like that. Um, U.S. meddling in the Horn of Africa. And then, of course, people power standing up in the ROK and um, and we've talked about, you know, in, in small batches, you know, people's power standing up and having strikes around the U.S., uh, but of course it's not organized in the same way as the KCTU, so certainly we can look at Korea as a model um, to try to, you know, bring our unions together in a way that is not a 
Fed-led conglomeration based on old, the old few racist unions like the AFL-CIO, but more of a, a people's conglomeration of trade unions, much like the KCTU, is, is something we, we probably need to look for in the in the United States. Absolutely. Well, that is a probably longer than average. If this is your first current events, that's that's probably a little more than we usually yeah, dive in. Usually, but we had a lot like to catch up minutes, on. And they usually have five minutes and have a clear goal. And my my and uh, my transition between different events is a little breakneck. But again, uh, you know, no, my no, brain no, is everywhere because a lot's been going on, and I was just trying to like say everything no. that I thought needed to be said. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much for the recap, David. I appreciate it. Um, that being said, for those that have been hanging with bated breath for a week, guys, <laughs> it's the Wall Street Journal opinion piece of the week. Oh, yes. baby. It's back. And, and brought got- to you this time by Kwame Nkrumah. Brought to you this time by Kwame Nkrumah. That being said, in its issue of 12 May 1965, under the headline of Poor Nation's Plight, the paper first analyzes which countries are considered industrial and which backward. There is, it explains, no rigid method of clarification. Nevertheless, it points out, a generally used breakdown, however, has been recently maintained by the International Monetary Fund, because in the words of the NIMF official, the economic demarcation in the world is getting increasingly apparent. The breakdowns, the official says, is based on simple common sense. In the IMF's view, the industrial countries are the United States, the United Kingdom, most West European nations, Canada, and Japan. A special category called Other Developed Areas includes such European lands as Finland, Greece, and Ireland, plus Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. The IMF's less developed category embraces all of Latin America and nearly all the Middle East, non-communist Asia, and Africa. In other words, the backward countries are those situated in the neo-colonial areas. Yeah, let's let's get a little context. Remember what year this is. When you hear South Africa, this is like... Before Nelson Mandela, this is like explicitly apartheid South Africa. And so you've got like the developed nations are settler colony, European country, European country, settler colony, uh, that the country that was fascist over in Asia through World War II, settler colony, European country, European country, European country, and that South African apartheid settler colony. It's like, okay, you know, I mean, flip South Africa for Israel, and, and you could say the same thing today, right? This is about exactly. being colonized or being a colonizer. And you notice which countries are left completely out of this, and this is why we have the analysis of first world a second world third world and the term third world country comes in it's a colonial relation um is is the third world whether they're not aligned or neo-colonized countries are the ones that are not in the western pole of the world that feels it it quote-unquote won the cold war because the unfortunate um collapse of the soviet union and the immediate brutal grabbing of territories by the west the quote-unquote socialist pole which was led by the soviet union and and to this day Excluding the non-aligned countries like China and stuff, although China's kind of made the new poll, uh, includes the DPRK, Cuba, but it's, it's certainly not as robust as it was. And then the quote-unquote third world, that's the non-aligned socialist countries. And then these um, colonized countries, uh, again, most of Africa, most of Asia, especially you know West Asia with the, the recent U.S. meddling there. It wasn't that different, what is it, 70 years ago, 60 years ago? It wasn't that different. Yeah. Nope. 
After quoting figures to support its argument, the Wall Street Journal comments on this situation. The industrial nations have added nearly $2 billion to their reserves, which now approximate $52 billion. At the same time, the reserves of the less developed group not only have stopped rising, but have declined some $200 million. To analysts such as Britain's Miss Ward, the significance of such statistics is clear. The economic gap is rapidly widening between a white, complacent, highly bourgeois, very wealthy, very small North Atlantic elite and everybody else. And this is not a very comfortable heritage to leave to one's children. Everyone else includes approximately two thirds of the population of Earth spread out about through about 100 nations. Considering this is admission by the Wall Street Journal and in the 60s. Yes. Jesus. But that's it's pretty again, What's what's very true today, and it's just laid out as Nkrumah spotted in the Wall Street Journal incredibly clearly here. Most of the world's population is put at a disadvantage, while a very small North Atlantic, it's interesting to use the term North Atlantic, considering how that is a good way to identify this group, and it's it's a big part of the importance of NATO to them, um, group is siphoning off all the wealth. It, it just, Same as it ever was. <laughs> That's right. This is no new problem. In the opening paragraph of his book, The War on Poverty, written in 1953, the present British labor leader, Mr. Harold Wilson, summarized the major problem of the world as he then saw it. For the vast majority of mankind, the most urgent problem is not war or communism or the cost of living or taxation. It is hunger. Over 1.5 billion people, something like two-thirds of the world's population, are living in conditions of acute hunger, defined in terms of identifiable nutritional disease. This hunger is at the same time the effect and the cause of the poverty, squalor, and misery in which they live. Its consequences... Again, oh, yeah. Again, uh, not much has changed there. The one thing that I will say uh, has changed there is Mr. Harold Wilson is no longer the leader of the Labor Party. Yeah, um, that, is, that is a change. Other, otherwise, tragically, most of that last paragraph was still very true. Names change, things stay the same. Its consequences are likewise understood. The correspondent of the Wall Street Journal, previously quoted, underlines them. Many diplomats and economists view the implications as overwhelmingly and dangerously political. Unless the present decline can be reversed, these analysts fear, the United States and other wealthy industrial powers of the West face the distinct possibility, in the words of British economist Barbara Ward, of a sort of international class warfare. What is lacking are any positive proposals for dealing with the situation. All that the Wall Street Journal's correspondent can do is point out that the traditional methods recommend for curing the evils are only likely to make the situation worse. It has been argued that the developed nation should effectively assist the poorer parts of the world and that the whole world should be turned into a welfare state. However, there seems little prospect that anything of this sort could be achieved. The so-called aid programs to help backward economies represent, according to a rough UN estimate, only one half of one percent of the total income of industrial countries. But when it comes to the prospect of increasing such aid, the mood is one of pessimism. Now, yeah. Again, a couple things draw here. I know we're stopping a lot, but this is a right <laughs> this book. Is, this, this is it's content so, rich. It's, it's so damn good and full of important stuff. Um, one, again, when they talk about, like, you know, the problems that go international will come back home to haunt you, right? All of these problems are still true, probably even more true today. And this hasn't even gotten into the way that aid itself can be, you know, a way to 
hold these countries back and 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 put them in a hole and, and gain dependency and siphon wealth from them and control them from these wealthy countries. And this is just talking about the aid is, is supremely lacking. It's barely anything that doesn't affect these Western countries. It's negligible. And yet the thought of, well, let's give a little more because these countries need it. It's, are you fucking kidding me? And, of course, we can see that not only internationally, but intranationally in this this age of austerity and cuts. We just talked about the, the collapsing of the Build Back Better bill. Um, and so you see these things coming home to haunt you, but also every one of these things that come home to haunt you is still happening to these other countries, and it's still happening more acutely than even what's come home to haunt you. And if you have any care about your fellow workers at all, that should drive you to fight that much harder against these forces and against these these prospects of power. Um, so that that's a, a very important thing that just immediately pops in the head there. The other thing is that there's this, and again, this is why we talk about at the end, we need praxis, right? It's not about just knowing the theory. It's not enough to know and recognize the problems and then pat yourself on the back for recognizing or saying you care because you spoke out. If I, I get that you're limited as an individual and we need to to do everything we can and organize and build ourselves as a class, and that's a long, arduous process that you need to set realistic expectations with and build into a revolutionary product. So I'm not saying, like, how dare you don't turn this over yourself today. It'd be a little hypocritical um, and ridiculous. But again, when we talk about praxis, without praxis, what the hell is this theory, right? This is a very liberal thing to, to recognize the problems of the world and mention them, but not really have any solutions or give a shit about the solutions that you have the power to have. Just mention them. Just just really mention how bad they are. Good job. Good job, you. You wear your little button that says, I remember. Like, fuck off. <laughs> a large school of thought holds that expanded share the wealth schemes are idealistic and impractical. This school contends climate undeveloped human, climate undeveloped human, skills, lack of natural resources, and other factors, not just lack of money, retard economic progress in many of these lands. And that the countries lack personal personnel with the training or will to use vastly expanded aid effectively. Share the wealth schemes, according to this view, would be like pouring money down a bottomless well, weakening the donor nations without effectively curing the ills of the recipients. I like how I disrupted it and immediately said, and we haven't even gotten to the problem with aid, and then it immediately gets into the problems with aid. But um, as we learned with Dr. Du Bois... Shut let up and let them talk. talk. <laughs> Shut up and let Nkrumah talk. Uh, but related thing, again, we're talking about Africa. Actually, we're talking about um, Africa in, in a region uh, that is very near where Burkina Faso is. Um, you know, old old uh, uh, thing said by um, I turned the candidate. Thomas, Thomas Sankara. Sankara. Yeah. Don't don't send us aid. Don't send us grain. Send us plows. Send us the machinery, right? Develop us to, to grow our own crops is what it means. You know, these countries don't need aid. Maybe acutely they do, and certainly you don't want to watch them starve and be like, whatever, I sent you the equipment to go build a factory. But they need tools. They Their natural resources are incredibly rich, and where they aren't, they have nearby neighbors they should be able to do trade with. But when you sanction them away from trade, when you lock them in militarily, when you stop them from building infrastructure by robbing away their wealth or building the infrastructure for them, but in a way that only serves your corporations that you force them to allow in to run off with the natural resources and profits. These things 
leave places underdeveloped. They're not underdeveloped. They're overexploited. It's not a failure of development. It's a destruction of their ability to develop by exploiting them. They need the tools for self-sustainment, not just the aid. Absolutely. The absurdity of this argument is demonstrated by the fact that every one of the reasons quoted to prove why the less developed parts of the world cannot be developed applied equally strongly to the present developed countries in the period prior to their development. The argument is only true in this sense. The less developed world will not become developed through the goodwill or generosity of the developed powers. It can only be developed through a struggle against the external forces which has, vested, which has a vested interest in keeping it underdeveloped. Of these forces, neocolonialism is, at this stage of history, the principle. I propose to analyze neocolonialism, first by examining the state of the African continent and showing how neocolonialism at the moment keeps it artificially poor. Next, I propose to show how, in practice, African unity, which in itself can only be established by the defeat of neocolonialism, could immensely raise African living standards. From this beginning, I propose to examine neocolonialism generally, first historically, and then by a consideration of the great international monopolies whose continued stranglehold on the neocolonial sectors of the world ensures the continuation of the system. Yep. So, very good chapter, of course. Asking the really rich people, this is totally in both of our interests. Can you please help? They're just going to go, this isn't in both of our interests. Fuck you. Um, <laughs> picking up, uh, this is chapter one, Africa's resources. Africa is a paradox which illustrates and highlights neocolonialism. Her earth is rich, yet the products that come from above and below her soil continue to enrich not Africans predominantly, but groups and individuals who operate to Africa, Africa's impoverishment. With a roughly estimated population of 280 million, about 8% of the world's population, Africa accounts for only 2% of the world's total production. Yet even the present very inadequate surveys of Africa's natural resources show the continent to have immense untapped wealth. We know that iron reserves are put at twice the size of America's and two-thirds of the Soviet Union's, and on the basis of an estimated 2 billion metric tons. Africa's calculated coal reserves are considered to be enough to last for 300 years. New petroleum Jesus. fields, yeah, that's a lot. Uh, new petroleum fields are being discovered and brought into production all over the continent. Yet production of primary ores and minerals, considerable as it appears, has touched only the fringes. Africa has more than 40% of the world's potential water power. Again, this is something that Nkrumah pushes on a lot, and it makes great, immense sense. It's not only clean power and something that Africa is especially rich with, but it's it's something that he was able to, to put forth a plan with and, and build his infrastructure around in Ghana. Um, a greater share than any other continent, yet less than 5% of its volume has been utilized. Even taking into account the vast desert stretches of the Sahara, there is still in Africa more arable and pasture land than exists in either the United States of America or the Soviet Union. There is even more than in Asia. Our forest areas are twice as great as those in the United States. If Africa's multiple resources were used on her own development, they could place her among the modernized continents of the world. But her resources have been and still are being used for the greater development of overseas interests. Africa provided to Britain in 1957 the following proportions of basic materials used in her industry. And it's like iron ore is 19% or 29%, manganese is 80%, cobalt is 82%, 
antimony. I'm not even sure what antimony is. It's 91%. Um, phosphates. French imports 100% of their phosphates from Africa um, and 85% of their lead. Um, Germany, uh, Africa provides 71% of their phosphorites. It's, it's huge percentages of what these countries get for these raw materials. Um, it, antimony is used in medicine and cosmetics. Hey, there you go. Okay. Um, yet in none of the new African countries, there is there a single integrated industry based upon any of these resources. Although possessing 53 of the world's most important basic industrial minerals and metals, the African continent tails far behind all others in industrial development. Gauged on the production of primary products output in the total economic uh, activity, by comparison with the country of most advanced production, the United States of America, the facts can be seen at a glance. And it's showing country and then year and then how much agriculture and forest fishing there is i'm not even sure what the the right column is like minimum maybe but you can starkly see like nigeria has 63 you know percent of this african uh, of this agriculture and the united states has like four and yet they both are putting out one percent um and this is from the u.n uh, statistics yearbook of 1960 It'll be noted that in American agriculture, forestry and fishing provide a mere 4% of the total national activity. Ah, see, now it's getting explained. There we go. Just keep reading. Always just keep reading. Best rule of thumb. And mining a trifling 1%. On the other hand, industry, manufacture, and commerce provide 47%. And the African countries included in this table, which are, with the exception of Nigeria, those with the highest settler communities and therefore the most exploited, agriculture is predominant. Industry, manufacture, and commerce lag far behind. Even in these cases in South Africa, the most highly industrialized sector of the African continent, the contribution of agriculture, 12%, and mining, 13%, are equal to those of industry, manufacture, and construction put together. Okay, so there was a whole other column that was just way off to the side there. So terrific. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Gotta love formatting. Hooray. <laughs> However, on the whole, mining has provided a most profitable venture for foreign capital investment in Africa. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, its benefits for Africans have by no means been on an equal scale. Mining production in a number of African countries has a value of less than $2 per head of population. As Europe, in quotes France, out trimmer puts it, it is quite certain that a mining production of $1 or $2 per inhabitant cannot appreciably affect a country's standard of living. Affirming correctly that in the zones of exploitation, the mining industry introduces a higher standard of living, the journal is forced to the conclusion that mining exploitations are, however, relatively privileged isolated islands in a very poor total economy. The reason for this is seen in the absence of industry and manufacture. Owing to the fact that mining production is destined principally for exportation, mainly in primary form, it goes to feed the industries and factories of Europe and America to the impoverishment of the countries of origin. And that makes sense. You know, we've talked about like integrations, right? Vertical integrations versus horizontal integrations. And you get the whole process there, right? And why is vertical integration so valuable? Well, you control the resources at every stop. And where are they cheapest? They gain labor value at each stop. So if Africa can only provide the stop that it's the cheapest and then all its resources are taken away and then as it 
needs goods back, it has nothing to purchase them with, and it can scantily try to purchase them um, away from those countries as those countries profit off it uh, or receive a few little bits in aid, it's going to remain poor even though it has all of the resources that the world depends on. Absolutely. Um, let's see. It also remarked by Europe, France, Outremer, that about 50% of Africa's mining production remains in the country of origin as wages. Even the most cursory glance at the annual accounts of the mining companies refutes this claim. The excesses of revenue over expenditure in many cases proves conclusively by its size that wages received by manual labor form by no means such an exaggerated proportion of value produced as 50%. The considerable sums which go in highly paid salaries to European staffs in the skilled and administrative categories, part of which is returned to their own countries, must in many instances amount to the total received by African labor, to say nothing of the large amounts which swell the yearly incomes of wealthy directors who reside in the metropolitan cities of the West. So that's nice, right? Bill, well, let's use an example Bill Gates. He exploits the shit out of Africa and, of course, owns the most land in the United States. Just land-grabbing, greedy bastard Bill Gates, right? So let's say Bill Gates owns some mine in Africa to mine out ores for Microsoft microchips. And he says, oh, look, 50% of the revenue is profit, according to this, this France outremer. You know, Krum is sitting here saying, well, okay, most of that's the CEO, like... And then it's and then it's the managers and and the other Americans that take the money out. The actual Africans getting the wages is is a paltry tiny bit of that percentage. It's not fifty percent. I don't know what number he's about to use, but like let's say it's five or ten percent. It's nowhere near fifty percent, and that's a lot more people. And that's where the natural resources are coming from. And those are the people doing the manual labor that is needed to get it out. Um, The assumption also ignores another important fact, namely that wages of manual workers, low as they are, are partly spent on goods manufactured abroad and imported, taking out the primary producing countries a good part of the workers' wages. In many causes, the imported goods are the products of the companies associated with the mining groups. Vicious, vicious cycle. Yep. Frequently, they are sold in the company's own stores. Oh, company stores. Terrific. Uh, On the mining compounds or by their appointed agents, the workers having to pay prices fixed by the companies. The poverty of the people of Africa is demonstrated by the simple fact that their income per capita is among the lowest in the world. There's another chart that's more of a list of countries, but again, formatting. Um, But but conclusions, we, we, we understand. Um. In some countries, for example, Gabon and Zambia, up to half of the domestic product is is paid to resident expatriates and to the overseas firms who own plantations and mines. In Guinea-Bissau, Angola, Libya, Swaziland, Southwest Africa, and Zimbabwe, foreign firms profit and settler or expatriate incomes exceed one-third of the domestic product. Algeria, Congo, and Kenya were in this group before independence. Amazing how independence changes that. Yep. On achieving independence, almost every new state of Africa has developed plans for industrialization and rounded economic growth in order to improve productive capacity and thereby raise the standard of living to its people. But while Africans remain divided, progress is bound to be painfully slow. Economic development is dependent not only on the availability of natural resources and the size of population of a country, but on the economic size, which takes into account both population and income per capita. 
In many African states, the population and per capita profits are extremely small, giving an economic unit no larger than a medium-sized firm in a Western capitalist country or a single-state enterprise in a European socialist economy. Africa is having to pay a huge price once more for the historical accident that this vast and compact continent brought fabulous profits to Western capitalism. First out of the trade in its people, and then out of imperialist imperialist exploitation. This enrichment of one side of the world out of the exploitation of the other has left the African economy without the means to industrialize. At the same time, when Africa, when Europe passed into its industrial revolution, the gap there was considerable a considerably narrower gap in development between the continents. But with every step in the evolution of productive methods and the increased profits drawn from the more and more shrewd investment in manufacturing equipment and base metal production, the gap widened by leaps and bounds. Yeah, basically, it was really easy to be one of the richest countries in the world when everyone was agrarian and oh by the way you were already robbing slaves away from this continent right and and killing people and rounding them up and and throwing them in boats and and taking them across the ocean just to treat them like chattel and garbage um but even without that factor there just wasn't that much of a difference but as these countries developed thanks to that exploitation and slavery um all of a sudden, you've got these industries that just let you siphon the wealth away. So even the socialist countries that aren't doing these horrible things but started from a base that was already developed by this as well are at this advantage. These capitalist countries that are still siphoning wealth from these neo-colonies are at this advantage. And of course, these capitalist countries don't want to stop the gravy train. That's not in their interest. So they're going to keep doing what they're doing, and the gap gets wider and wider and wider. Absolutely. The report of the UN Economic Commission for Africa, published in December 1962 under the title of Industrial Growth in Africa, states that the gap between the continents separated by the Mediterranean has widened faster during the 20th century than ever before. True, per capita output has increased in Africa, particularly in the last two decades, which have seen an increase of some 10 to 20 percent. Already far ahead, the industrial ahead, the industrial countries have marked a per capita advance in the same period of 60 percent, and their per capita industrial production may be estimated as high as 25 times that in Africa as four whole. The difference between the great, for the greater part of Africa, however, is even more marked since industry on this continent tends to be concentrated in small areas in the north and south. A real transformation of the African economy would mean not only doubling agricultural output, but increasing the industrial output some 25 times. The report makes it plain that industry rather than agriculture is the means by which rapid improvement in Africa's living standards is possible. There are, however, imperialist socialists and apologists. Imperialist specialists. specialists. I was about to say, I was like, that doesn't sound right. There are, however, imperialist specialists and apologists who use the less developed countries to concentrate on agriculture and leave industrialization for some time later when their populations shall be well fed. The world's economic development, however, shows that it is only with advanced industrialization that it has been possible to raise the nutritional level of the people by raising their levels of income. Agriculture is important for many reasons, and the governments of African states, concerned with bringing higher standards to their people, are devoting great investment to agriculture. But even to make agricultural yield more more the aid of industrial output is needed, and under the developed world, oh my god, is needed, and the underdeveloped world cannot forever be placed at the mercy of the more industrialized. 
This dependence must slow the rate of increase in our agriculture and make it subservient to the demands of the industrial producers. That is why we cannot accept such sweeping assessments as that made by Professor Leopold G. Scheidel of the Vienna School of Economics. Boo! I was going to say, I just saw Leopold and Vienna School of Economics, and I'm ready to throw up my hands. Fuck this shit. At a recent meeting in London of the International Geographical Congress, commented Professor Scheidel, People in developing countries seem to think that all is necessary for them to become as wealthy as the West is to build factories. Most experts agree that it is wiser and more promising to develop agriculture into self-sufficiency and onto the level of a marketing economy. This train of thought lines links up directly with that of the chairman of the Brooks Brothers, Sir Jock Jock Campbell, oh wow, whose combine of companies is busy monopolizing sugar and byproduct industries in British Guiana, shipping and trading in the Caribbean and East Africa, and is now penetrating into the west of the African continent. Sir Jock Campbell asserted at the annual address of the Africa Bureau in London on the 29th of November, 1962, that agriculture was the basis of African development and the plantations were an effective method of increasing economic potential. He considered that so long as industrialized agriculture employed men free to come and go, it was preferable in terms of both efficiency and liberty to the communized collective farming to the communized collective farming whose results had fallen short of expectations both in Russia and China. He does not seem to have, be, have convinced the sugar workers in British Guyana, and it is a moot point whether he has been able to impress the benefits of his free to come and go plantation philosophy on the workers for his companies in night. Nyasaland, Rhodesia, and South Africa. Even the scientific supporters of the imperialist pattern are aware of the flaws in their injunctions, but they cunningly attribute the emphasis placed by the developing states upon uh, upon industrialization to political ambitions rather than to an economic and social necessity. A European representative of the University of Malaya, the Mr. D. W. Fryer, speaking of the meeting of the International Geographic Conference, to which reference is made above, said that an increase in the efficiency of traditional export industries in the underdeveloped countries was an obvious move, but it was politically unattractive. It suggested continued acceptance of the old colonial economy. Industrialism was an integral part of the nationalist movement. Its mainspring was not economic, but political, and political expediency was often more important than economic efficiency in location of new industry. It's it's weird how, you know, the... the, the Harvard professor of Remington tells us that the only way to make crime go down is more cops type equivalent fucking here. You know, it's like, oh, the agriculture may be putting you up behind, but that's that's pie in the sky lefty nonsense. Look at look at Russia and China. They had famines, too. I you need you must need the agriculture. You can't you can't eat without the without the food. The agriculture is, is the path to go, you know, and, and don't worry about that. That global warming stuff. Uh uh, you know, uh, uh, ExxonMobil will solve it with this fracking thing that will get rid of, of the, the CO2. It's just fucking... Ugh. And on that chipper note, we are going to end for this week. Uh, <laughs> says Ben, another uh, another dense chapter, a lot of a lot of this pausing, a lot of amazing. going through. I'm pausing so much in spite of the fact that I'm pausing because there's there's robust things to talk about, but I feel like this book, we do this to give people context, and I feel like this book needs the least context of anything we've ever read. It's brilliant yeah, so and amazing, it and it's so on its face. It's so just like right there, ready to go. Like it is, it is, it is brilliant. Again, it's 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 like reading like how plain it is. It's right like reading Stalin or Mao, except even a little bit better in that sense. It's 
just purely incredible. Yep. And and of course, you know, the information is important and is laid out well. Yeah. I mean, it's so far a highly impressive work, and I'm, I'm excited to continue digging into it. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, uh, this is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. There are a number of different ways you can reach out to us if you would like to. For instance, like our correction at the top of this episode was brought to us by a listener in Discord. Yes. Uh, there are a number of ways to contact us, however, one of which is email. You can contact us at marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Uh, you can also hit us up on Twitter. We are at Mark's Madness Pod on the Hell site. Uh, you DMs are open. You are welcome to pop in there if you would like. And also on the Hell site is the link to our Discord server. It is in our Twitter bio. Uh, and our Discord server is definitely the place that I spend the most time uh, because I don't want to subject myself to Twitter too much. It makes me un- it makes me unhappy. Um, and it's just a good community. It's a it's a group of like minded people that are there to talk about our day, talk about communism, uh, talk about media or uh play final fantasy 14 which is the other thing we do a lot so just get ready for that we play a lot of final fantasy 14 um that being said david i believe it is time for a disclaimer sir it is time for a disclaimer so something we kind of alluded to uh earlier in this uh book is is the importance of some things that we'll talk about in this disclaimer uh obviously this podcast we started nathan came up to me and was like hey I want to read Capital. You've read Capital before. That will help me read Capital. It's a good thing to read in a group anyway. And so we started reading it. We started discussing it because you do want to discuss books of theory or history in a group and tie it back to your current day, what it means to you, make sure you're understanding it and have a context around it. And that's why those group political educations are important. We thought, well, we're only two people. What if we recorded it and made it more than two and we'll see how good it is and halfway through that book we decided you know what we could go forward with this and started sharing that recording with you and lo and behold here we are together and since that recording started something we always hoped is hopefully you're out there organizing in some kind of political party and whatever political education or reading group you have you're reading these same works and we could be another voice in that group another perspective another bit of background and context anything that can make you better understand and better soak in these works um let's say your party's not doing that but they're doing you know a shorter work or something that's more focused on something you're organizing around at the moment and you're reading this on your own hopefully we can be that reading group and we can give you that context we can give you uh, that extra perspective we can give you more to discuss this about and to better soak in the work and let's you know say for that let's say you know we're how you're reading it whether it's a book that we summarize or a book like this where we read more word for word and we're kind of an enhanced ebook whatever it is we can do to make these works more accessible to you because we want that theory out there guiding you giving you your political understanding so that you can put that into action and when you put that into action uh, whether it's aid or mutual aid or politically educating other people or anything of the like uh, we call that praxis praxis is theory in action of course there's no such thing as praxis because you can't have theory in action if you don't don't have theory and theory is completely useless without praxis they go hand in hand they are tied at the hip amen as always that being said this has been mark's madness pod my name is nathan my name's david and we will talk to you all next week bye, bye.